Hello, and thank you for listening to the Major Film Reviews podcast. The podcast you're about to hear contains strong language, major plot spoilers, and some very random ramblings. Most of the films you will hear about in the following podcast have reviews hosted at majorfilmreviews.com, where you'll find all of my reviews from the past four years, as well as links to buying my books on Amazon, or to buy me a coffee should you feel so inclined. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the podcast. podcast. I'm Nathan Major of Nathan Film Reviews, joined as ever by my co-host Angel Rulos. Say hello, Angel. Hello, Angel. <laughs> I think that's going to be a running joke now. <laughs> I I'm pretty sure you. I'm pretty sure you did that last month as well. I should have expected yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're still kind of, sort of, not really in lockdown here in the UK. The cinemas are still closed. Mm. Um. But that hopefully that'll be all changing soon. And um, Cineworld, my local chain, that announced it was opening on the tenth, and then last week it changed that to the thirty-first. So it'll be uh, next month at least before I get back to the cinemas. But we've still got some things to talk about today. Um, I've got some of my reviews that I've done this past month to discuss some of the things I've written about, and we've also got our main topic of discussion for the day, which is a uh, Korean cinema. So um, I'm. I'm a recent convert to the cause of foreign cinema, I must admit. I went with Angel to go see Parasite way back in, it seemed like it was years ago now, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't even remember when it was. It was that long ago. It's just, I remember it in sepia mode. (laughs) It was those glorious pre-COVID days where you could go to the cinema and sit wherever you liked and hug, hug people and... Yeah, uh, not be two meters apart, and yeah. I mean, I I usually wear a mouth mask during flu season, anyways, because my immune system is not that yeah. great. But like now, it's mandatory. <laughs> so for for me, I'm like, hey, I'm not the only one in the shop wearing a mouth mask, but I am. Bit of was it's a bit of shop though. <laughs> I went went on the buses, the local bus service today for the first time since last year, so. Obviously, I wore a mask. It's mandatory now, and um, I managed to get the wrong bus twice. Oh my but, god! But that's p- probably not a story for the podcast. Uh, so, to to bring us up to speed, I kind of I wanted to see Parasite after I kind of saw the hullabaloo to do with the the Oscars and how just how incredibly adorable Bong Joon Ho was at the Oscar ceremony. Just like all that man wanted to do was drink. Like yeah. he he didn't care about all the Oscars. He, oh, 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 obviously he was really flattered, and you could see that it all meant a lot to him. But like all in his in all of his speeches, he mentioned drinking until the next day, and yeah. it just endeared me so much to him. And um, and after after watching Parasite with you, of course, I was amazed as was everybody else who's seen it how how good it was. And I wanted to kind of have a bit of a deeper dive into Korean cinema and see. And I've just kind of skimmed the top in the last few weeks. But um, Angel is a more seasoned Korean culture vet <laughs> than I am, shall we say? A bit of a yeah. Korean connoisseur. Do you want to tell us about your love of Korean culture? Uh, you mean completely and utterly embarrass myself and subject everyone to second-hand embarrassment. Okay, I'll do it. Try um, and keep so, it PG, though. Try and keep Not it so PG. Not so much fast, please. 
<sighs> You're asking a lot. <laughs> uh, no, uh, my first introduction to Korean culture was basically K-pop. Uh-huh. And it was Wonder Girls on Jules Holland. So if this ever gets to Jules Holland, thank you. You've improved my life so much. Um, yeah, I was just incredibly bored flicking through the channels. And then Jules Holland, it was one of the late night shows. These like five Korean goddesses walked on stage in amazing gold sequin, um, like uh, what they're called, dresses. Oh my God, what is happening to my English? Goodbye, English. This is how amazing they are. I can't speak. You are a foreigner, uh, though, so we'll let you off. I mean, I'm half a foreigner, <laughs> thank you. I was born here. My mother is British. Oh, it's yes, just my of dad. Yeah. Just my dad. Blame <laughs> um, I... it all on him. Because, <laughs> no, um, um, Hmm? Angel's got that sweet, sweet EU passport that I'm going to marry her for one, marry him for one, one day. No, I've, I've just so I can take advantage of your passport. I, I currently have a British passport, but I Damn. kind of, yeah, yeah, I do have my birth certificate, and I've got my parents, um, well, my dad's and my grandparents' birth certificate, so I can get an Italian passport. It's just. Um, with everything that's going on with the whole transitioning thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know where I stand <laughs> with getting an Italian passport because um, it's from what I understand. I I thought the British way of of transitioning, you know, the whole five years being so fast and you know we're totally rushed into everything, you know, waiting five years. Um. Italy apparently isn't as easy, <laughs> so it's like okay, perspective. I thought waiting five years to transition in the UK is is going to be you know long and hard, but <laughs> that's what she said. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly <laughs> what Italy is saying. She's just like, <laughs> really, <laughs> well. Um, so I I'm still hoping to to get an Italian passport, but I think I have to get um everything sorted out in the UK first and fully yeah. transition, get my gender recognition certificate if that is still a thing because I don't know what's happening at all <laughs> in regards to that because of the, the whole reform and yeah so, it's anyway. all incredibly difficult so yeah, uh, yeah. back to K-pop this, this back to K-pop because K-pop <laughs> is my form of escapism, it's just like everything that I don't want to experience in the world, I could just delve into K-pop and uh-huh. Korean film, TV shows and forget the world. It doesn't exist. It's just K-dramas, K-films, K-music. Um, so yeah, uh, through Wonder Girls, I discovered Rain, who is, um, he's still working. He's an, an actor. Uh, well, predominantly he's a, a musician. He's a singer. But he's also an actor. So Ninja Assassin, absolutely love that film. Um, there's I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay, which I think is actually one of Boone's films. I need to double check that. I did write it's, it down. And it's I, not. Um, no. bon, I don't think Bong Joon-ho has ever made a film called that before because I was, I was having a look at his filmography the other day to see what else I could buy and watch. But um, strangely, like... All of his earlier stuff, which I'm really interested in seeing, is really difficult to get hold of here. Um, 
like his later stuff is relatively easy because it's on streaming sites. But there's two films: there's uh, Memories of Murder, which is like his breakthrough film, which is incredibly expensive to buy on a physical copy, and there's nowhere available on streams. And um, Back in Dogs Don't Bite, which is his first one, which is also not available on streams and really expensive. So, and and, and this is another hurdle to foreign film for people mm. like like us who want to watch that kind of things we found these hurdles of not being able to watch them through them not being available essentially yeah and going down a rabbit hole of somewhat illegal sites that i you know i don't recommend but when when you're... just to be crystal clear this yeah. podcast does not endorse illegal streaming no which don't get arrested. It's not worth it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> Support when, creators, when kids. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're, you know, I think at the time, when was this? This was like 2009. So I was just like, okay, so how do I actually watch this? Because it's not on YouTube. There isn't, I don't think Netflix even existed then. I think Netflix in 2009, I think it was Love Film or Love yeah i remember that they used to like yeah. post DVDs out, out to you to watch then you'd send them back yeah yeah i remember so, that I, I'm, I'm still from the days of when we got dvds in the post i think it was when they were transitioning from um vhs to dvds yeah i, I mean yeah. Block, blockbuster would have still been around at that time as well mm-hmm. yeah so, you know, rented films and what have you oh blockbusters and then Woolworths. yeah but anyway i digress again so, yeah, um, through K-pop with Wonder Girls to Rain, because they were in the same label, um, that introduced me to Korean films. So there's I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay. That is still one of my favorite films. And it's not um, Jun Bong-ho, it's Park Chan-wook, who did the Revenge trilogy. And it's a completely different The guy who directed film. Old Boy. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I, I have on Blu-ray that I still haven't watched yet. But he, he's Japanese, is he not? Because Old Boy's a Japanese film, I think. It's Old Boy is a Japanese manga, uh-huh. and it's just Park Chan Wook was just like, I really like this. I'm turning this into a film, right? And then Spike Lee turned it into a remake. Yeah, which <laughs> I I saw, and I didn't hate it. Usually, I'm a bit like, oh my god, remakes. This is this is not going to mm. go well at all. I I'm just I'm one of those people. It's a very strange choice but... for Spike Lee as well. <laughs> yeah, but I I didn't hate it. I was just like, this is interesting. And then Elizabeth Olsen, I really love her. And I, yeah, I was just like, this is an interesting take. This is. And then your um, yeah, your K-pop fandom eventually brought you around to BTS as well. Who um, who we won't discuss in depth. But, um, anyone who follows Angel on social medias will know that um, BTS I, I have, is a key. Yeah. <laughs> I have a stun account, and then I've got my normal, my local account, and and you keep tagging my stun account, and I'm just like, please, let me keep the two worlds separate because I can't. <laughs> don't I, I don't want to. You. I know. Just I keep like, forgetting you're the handle. So I... <laughs> yeah, but my handle is my actual name, though. <laughs> know what to search for i didn't know yeah it's it's one of those things where it's just like i am like my identifier is bts 
<laughs> that that's how deep down that rabbit hole I am. My identifier is BTS. If you need to find me, just look for BTS. I mean, you've probably come across a lot of different accounts before you got to yours. To be fair. <laughs> oh my goodness! How how many are there? Yeah, no. There's with both names. There's there's with the both handles. There's a few variations. I think my mum. Like my mum was on. She kind of is, but she isn't on Twitter as well. And it's just like I know that's aimed for me, but that's not actually my app. I um, I didn't realize how many K-pop stands there were on Twitter until something trends and it just floods my my. I mean, it's mainly because of you because you retweet it all. But it's but like every like two weeks or so, my my Twitter timeline will just be flooded with K-pop stuff. Yeah, which I have, I have no context for. Yeah, all of a sudden it's just like, why is this hashtag trending? And why is there K-pop attached to this? Because um, the last few days when I've been on Twitter, I'm trying to avoid it at the moment because it's just, it's not healthy. But the last time I went on it, All Blue Lives Matter was, uh, no, Blue Lives Matter was trending. And it was trending in the K-pop section. And I'm just like, oh no. Oh no, what have we done? Yeah, what have we done? Um... And then I'm just seeing pictures of like Smurfs and um oh I can't remember. Is it Grover from Sesame Street and um the Blue Men group? And I'm like, oh, we've basically taken something and ran it into the ground again because the we sent fan cams to um a couple of like police departments that were looking for evidence. And it was just like, no, you're just trying to, like, criminalise people that are fighting for human rights. I think... Um, <laughs> we broke that. Did, did I read it right that a lot of K-pop stands bought tickets to a Trump rally, so, like, it would mm-hmm. be very poorly uh, uh, attended? Did I read that right? Yeah. Yeah, wow. <laughs> this is the the power and inf- influence of the K-pop stand in 2020. Yeah. I mean, we're used to selling out stadiums, so why not sell out a Trump rally to, you know, prevent people from dying? Because, like, how many people were actually there that were, they were already, um, how was it? I think 13 members of Trump's team were already diagnosed with COVID-19 before that happened, and they went anyways. And that's his actual team. So it's just like, consider it you know, infection control? I think the perfect um, vision of a Trump rally for me would just be one where Trump steps out on stage and there's nobody there. That would be hilarious in so many ways. I actually feel that's really sad. I mean, not like... In the sense of like a human being stepping out on an empty stage. I mean... There's there's that difference. I mean, I'm not saying Trump is a human. I'm not saying that he is. He isn't. Like, but it's just yeah. That's anyway. We seem to have got sidetracked again. Again, again. (laughs) Like for which I'm going to blame the K-pop stands. (laughs) Uh, So. mentioned it but yeah so it was basically a thing of i discovered wonder girls who helped me discover rain 
I really got into Rain. I was just like, oh my god, he's acting. He's got a couple of films out. Oh, I, I really like this film. Let's see what Park Chan Wook has done. Oh, there's like the the Revenge trilogy. What's that about? Um, I found, oh, what's it called Lady Vengeance in HMV, and I'm just like, oh my god, I really love her red eye makeup because you know my chemical romance, the red eyeshadow, eyeliner. I still love that style. I will recreate that style still to this day and watched the film fell in love I was just like I need to see more of this and HMV kind of helped with that <clears throat> with the yeah. world section um, and... there's there's quite a good yeah. world cinema section in the HMV in yeah. Hull um, I got Mother from there mm. I did it from the website though not from the actual shop and mother is one of the films we'll be talking about because i'm uh, up till last year i wasn't all that much of a fan of foreign cinema and i'd kind of uh, justified this to a point of kind of because language is such a complex and interesting thing that sometimes subtitles can't cover the context of what's being said yeah so, so when i was watching a foreign film i always felt as if i was missing something and then mm-hmm. um, the the first one I went to go see and I really enjoyed it was before Parasite. It was last year. It was a a film called Pain and Glory by um, I can't pronounce his name. I think it's um, Pedro Aldomava, who was a Spanish director, and it starred Antonio Banderas, for which he was he was nominated for an Oscar for this year for his part in the film. And I really really liked it. And it was it was in Spanish, but it was quite accessible. The subtitles were intrusive, and, and I thought maybe this is something that I can get into, but I just maybe need uh, to get in on the ground floor, uh, yeah. as it were. Maybe I don't, I don't want something that's kind of overly complex and, and and layered to start off with, and that was a nice start. And then, um, obviously, we covered a few foreign films in um, uni. One that sticks out in my mind that really kind of reinforced my negative opinion of foreign films is a Hong Kong film called Chunking Express, Oh which, God! Which, uh, as I understand it, is quite like well liked within film circles. But I thought it was mm-hmm. one of the worst film, one of the worst things I've ever seen. It had it's... no plot at all. It it had the sp- it had the speed of a glacier. It was the subtitles seemed to make no sense in any context. I just I I didn't like it at all. So it gave me that negative reinforcement for so long that. I just needed to be watching the right films to be getting the right impression of it. Yeah, it's quite an artistic film, and you know, it's it's not your classical narration. So I'm I'm currently doing my parametric narration <laughs> essay this week. So I'm like, yeah, I have some terminology still stored in my brain. It's it's not all cobwebs. So yeah, the the, the way that the story moves, it's like what three different stories, mm-hmm. and they're not even linked really. It's just. Any creator who sacrifices audience investment for artistic license deserves neither. Mm. It is one of those where you sit down because you want to watch art in motion and just escape all forms of reality and just escape all form of logic and sense and reason. You're just there because you're an art nerd, basically. Which is kind of like one of the reasons why I kind of liked it. I didn't get it at all, but it's one of those things where... I could just watch and be like, oh my god, that colour grading. Ooh, wait, the thing that they did with the lights, that is pretty. And just not... I mean, the artistic 
the artistic argument makes sense sense to a point we kind of want mm. to watch something good but you also have to bear in mind when you're mm. making a film that you're making it for an audience and when yeah. you yeah it's when you start making film, when you start making films more for yourself than for an audience that's when you've got a problem in my opinion yeah, this this is not visual storytelling at all this is visual art there's that difference it's not a film in the sense of it's a story there's logic behind it there you know there's a plot there's a beginning a middle and an end this was just a film it's a bit like just in the loosest sense possible it was it's just a... it's essentially art but in motion it's just very it's a bit like um Legette, the um Oh, the old um, yeah. really pretentious French art film that that mm. you can appreciate as a work of art, but it's not an it's not a work of entertainment. It will belong better in a art gallery than a cinema. No, this opinion. is more for like if you want to study certain film techniques, then you go to Chunking Express. If you want to watch something that actually has a story, something that you can get emotionally involved in, and like psychologically involved with just no don't <laughs> if you want background noise junking express so it's... my um <laughs> my admission on the ground floor was pain and glory and that led kind of laboriously a few months down the line to going to see parasite which um i was quite literally gobsmacked at um it was despite being in a foreign language it's the most immersed i'd been in a film in so long so mm. so long um and after watching that i kind of became a bit a little bit obsessed with bong joon ho especially after i'd seen him at the oscars and seeing just like how endearing he, he was as a person and, and like his... when he was making the little statues kiss each other I know. I just... oh i keep so seeing gifts of that on, on my stan account and i'm just like this is adorable this is why i'm here <laughs> See, the, i would too I'd I'd be doing that if I was ever on that stage. I'd be like, oh my god, awards, kitty kitty. Like no. The thing about Bon Joon Ho's um, storytelling is there's a craftsmanship to it, and a, it, yeah. it it's noticeable in Parasite and in Mother, which I'll I'll get to a little later. But he kind of he crafts no plot thread he's ever put there like thoughtlessly. It's mm. put there to then be connected to something else little later on it's like a big flow chart with different pins are going at different places and everything connects up so satisfyingly in the end i want to be a bit more poetic and be like he doesn't just create a tapestry he creates a bijou tapestry yeah like everything is just you know threaded together and it's just beautiful just like, it's like um... everything everything just ties in and it's like you know, like the fancy gift wrapping with like the really fancy bow and everything. And I like the films that I've seen of him so far. The themes are all pretty similar. It's about classism. And I'm just like, he has such a poetic way of saying, fuck the bourgeois. <laughs> one of um, one of my favourite things about Parasite, and he kind of achieves the same thing with Mother, mm. is that there was a, a twist kind of midway through and this mm. is going to include some spoilers, so if you haven't seen Parasite, then get to it. But pause this podcast, go watch Parasite, and come back. But mm. basically, halfway through the film, the family who were kind of the, the poorer family discover that there was another family living under the house they were working, and the entire plot is flipped onto its head, that they're now the ones with privilege. Yeah. And at that 
at that reveal, I just couldn't get over how masterfully it was orchestrated. It was conducted like a composer, like weaves a symphony from his orchestra. It was just, it was the exact right time, exactly the right pitch. And then kind of by the end, they've he switched it again by putting one of the family back in that position again underneath the house. It's yeah. master craftsmanship of a narrative. Yeah, just the way it just like weaves in and out and you're like oh my god can this get any worse and then it kind of does and you're just like oh wait so they didn't have it that bad I mean they had it bad but it wasn't that bad it wasn't, it wasn't their level of bad but it, it was still bad but like it wasn't living wait, it's getting worse <laughs> it wasn't living in a secret compartment underneath someone's house bad yeah yeah and um after watching that, I'd kind of spoken to you about different aspects of Korean film, and you recommended yeah. uh, Train to Busan, which I finally watched last. Is it Busan or Busan? Busan is that right? Um, Busan, Busan. I'm I'm still learning. I, as far as I'm aware of, it's more Busan. It's kind of Busan. halfway between a B and a P, right. and I'm, I've not mastered that yet. So. Um, <laughs> I, I love languages, so foreign films, I grew up on this. I grew up in, in Holland, so our TV was basically everything in its original, you know, its native language, and then yeah. Dutch, um, Dutch subtitles. So I'm used to this. I also grew up deaf, which I mentioned last yeah. time. The, so, um, I'm going to yes. put, put a little um, <clears throat> apology here that I'm, I'm going to attempt to say some Korean names. So... Uh, mm. I'm now going to ap- apologise for absolutely butchering these names, but um, I'm trying my best, I-, I promise. So, Train to Busan is directed by Yong Sang-ho. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. Yong Sang-ho. Um, at first glance, when you first told me about it, I was sceptical, as I always am when I hear of a new zombie film, zombie TV series. Every- everything basically seems to be made made with zombies, and it gets on my nerves a little bit. Um, but... I kind of found myself intrigued by this one. It was a, it's a novel concept. It's essentially a virus spreads throughout a population, and doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah. And um, and, and there's a, a certain strand of this virus gets trapped on a train heading from, I think it's Seoul, isn't it, to Busan, yeah. or some some Korean city to Busan, and then and they have to contain the virus within this train, and but the infection spreads so rapidly. That was something out. I really liked about it was how um, quickly they went from like being bitten to being these zombie creatures, because it, it all just seemed to kind of just pulse and just grow so quickly. Um, yeah. But I, I really enjoyed it. I subtitling had been in a foreign film wasn't in, in, intrusive to it at all. It was so accessible, and um, the acting was. It actually has one of my probably one of my favorite child actor performances in it. It's, um, yeah. from Kim Suan, who actually plays a character called Suan, who's the daughter mm-hmm. in uh, in the film. Um, she's really convincing. She has a lot of layers to her. She's kind of wanting more attention from her father. She doesn't think her father's a very good person. But he kind of go, mm. goes over an arc. It's it's a bit of a sad film towards the end, actually. Um, it's uh, heartbreaking. It is is, and it, I wasn't expecting it at all. Like I was expecting the typical kind of the heroes come through the end like yeah. strongly, but it's like mm. 
they don't kind of run over the finish line. They kind of limp over it, and it's, it was really refreshing. Yeah, I'm just just that that. Oh, I'm actually getting emotional just like recalling that that sort of that scene with with the dad. Like, That's beautifully shot as well. Like, so uh, beautiful because how it, a shadow off <clears throat> like falls from the yeah. tree. Yeah. Yeah, not trying to give too many spoilers away, but the the there is a very heartbreaking end, but the way that yeah. it's shot, you don't directly see it happening. Your imagination is allowed to sort of take over, which I absolutely love it when films do that where you know, you sort of you sort of see something, but you don't directly view it. You have to basically use your imagination. And that allows your emotions to come into play as well, or at least it does for me. And it's just, again, with the color grading, the colors that they use, like how they change that that color palette, it was just beautiful, but soul destroying and heartbreaking. And like, it's, I think one way of putting it, I think that's what they were trying to do in Titanic with Rose, where it was just like, Jack, don't go, don't leave me. That's what they were attempting and failed at. Like, just they totally failed at that. Whereas with Train to the Basan, where it's just like, no, no, don't go, don't go, please, don't go, don't. Okay, he went. Mm. So, the um, another good thing about it is how it kind of it subtly kind of introduces different arcs so it kind of brings three different stories on this train and then brings them all together to a conclusion by the end which was really nice little bit of completionism storytelling to show us these different angles towards what was going on and there's like different sort of versions of sacrifices especially with like paternal sacrifices yeah Uh, another spoiler alert there's two dads throughout the film and they both make really like the sacrifices they make for their family to survive and it's just like this is what manhood is this is what fatherhood is and it's just like but also maybe don't die (laughs) so as um you said there's two fathers one of them's played by Mm -hmm. gong yu which is the kind of businessman father. And the other one is um, Ma Dong-seok, who is also known as Don Lee. He's He's been in a few Western films as well. So he has a kind of Westernized name and a Korean name that I've found. But um, for, for the purposes of this film, I'm going to go with Ma Dong-seok because I think that's it's, it's best to refer to people by their actual name rather than a shortened version, I find, as a general rule. Oh, because I've got the information that he was born as um, Lee Dong-sok. So Lee would be his, his family name. Yeah. I've, um, I re- he's name. an American-Korean yeah. citizen, yeah. I yeah, got my Dong-sok, but yeah. This is the thing where it gets, for me, uh, and a lot of people with Korean names, it's the family name first, and then yeah. their first name. But the first name is usually two syllables. So the whole name is three syllables. And it's always just, I know when I was first learning Korean, I'm just like, wait, which syllable is is like the family name and which of the other two syllables are their actual name? And um, because when it gets translated to to like a westernized view, because it's, it's with his name being Donsok, it's like, okay, so is it 
Donsok Lee, or is his name actually Lee and then Donsok? Like, which one's the, the surname and then the first name? So from, yeah, it's... This is why I find languages so fascinating, because it's just like, okay, let's let's figure this out. Let's get into it. There's something really interesting about a, a language being impenetrable to, impenetrable to outsiders, because because like from an outside perspective, the the English language is probably one of the most difficult mm. in the whole world because of how how many like words we have that are the same word but have multiple different meanings, like wind and wind. Yeah, I oh. I still I still cannot forgive the English language for Worcestershire. <laughs> it's not exactly English either, because it's it's a you know it's like a combination of different languages, predominantly like Germanic and French and Latin. Well, but basically uh, the explanation for this is uh, English isn't one language; it's three languages wearing a long trench coat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. I could actually see that. I can envision that. I love it. The um, there's a a sequel out this year to Train, Train, Train to Busan as well. It's yeah. a standalone sequel. Yeah, it, it's it, not it, a, it was it was doing direct the, one. No, it it was doing the festival uh, rounds before everything went everything closed down. So it'll be, be due out soon. It's called Peninsula. Yeah. Um, it's as you say, it's not a direct sequel. It's a standalone one set in the same world. Yeah. So I'm looking forward. So I think he's got the same director as as well, which is always nice. Yeah, so. there's there's theories about one of the girls being the the daughter. Um, I've forgotten her name already. I've got a picture of her in front of me. Suan. Suan. Yeah, apparently one of the girls that you see in the trailer is Suan, and I'm just like, ooh, let's let's find out. Let's find out. <laughs> yeah. Um. As obviously. You recommended Train to Busan to me after mm. seeing Parasite, um, and it, it kind of is. It feels to me like a kind of beginner's film for anyone who's not too familiar with Korean films or foreign films in general, because it feels accessible to the layperson. Yeah. So, um, but the, there is a kind of with any different nationalities films, you'll find a kind of layer of cultural difference, which. Um, is more apparent in Mother, I think, than in Train to Busan. But there is a kind of layer of what we, what Western culture might think is weird or odd, but will probably be quite normal to a Korean culture. Mm. Obviously, me not knowing much about Korean culture, I'm kind of giving it a, a little bit of leeway because I don't know what constitutes being acceptable in, in Korean culture and what constitutes as a difference exactly yeah yeah because there's um different forms of like showing respect for example yeah. um kind of reminds me of an article i read about um parasite where someone was like oh my god like the way that the director just did this scene in the car where like the the driver was on one side but then the camera and um was like parallel to to how the the person in the back is and i'm like that's not an artistic choice. That's not a director thing. That's literally Korean culture. Because um, I can't remember the dad's name. My God, I'm so terrible with names. I apologize. But the, the rich dad was mm -hmm. um, sat in the back seat on the... Um, which side is it? The driver's side. side. Yeah, the, the driver's side. You know, the driver's in the driver's side, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the sort of like the, the seat of honor, essentially, in a mm -hmm. car 
is the back seat on the passenger side. Yeah. That's Could, like because they don't like to sit behind the person mm. driving. So something yeah. to do with that, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas for our culture, like you call shotgun. You're yeah. in the passenger side at the front. Whereas with Korean culture, passenger side at the back. Mm-hmm. That's where, you know, the person, you know, the man. Like that's where you go. That's your you know, your mother in law or whoever's like you know, the the household, the important person. Mm-hmm. They go there. And this article was just like, Oh my god, this is like such a great artistic choice. And it's like if you just maybe Googled it or watched other Korean dramas and films, you'd see that that's a very common thing for a person, you know, especially a high status person to sit at that side in the back. I noticed a lot of kind of uh, Japanese influence on it as well, especially in the body horror department. There's mm. a lot of similarities between um, the transformations between human and zombie with Japanese body horror. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking I mean, kind of the ring and things like that. Yeah, so, um, um, the the history between Korea and Japan is. Yeah, uh, Japan uh, used to be. Was it Japan used to be the imperial power in Korea, or Korea was the mm, imperial power in Japan? I think I think no, it's J- um, Japan were the power Japan, in Korea, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and the history behind that is is heartbreaking, and yeah, it, it's not something that's. That book, unfortunately, still hasn't been closed to this day. To be fair, Um, um, we learnt about this at uni when we were doing a a module on uh, film, nation and identity, which is looking at different nations' identity through a film. And the things that fascinated me most was learning about the history of relationships between countries, especially with Mm -hmm. Japan and Korea. Um, Because I think it was... Just after the Second World War, but before the Korean War, Korea experienced a kind of a new raft of freedom that it never really experienced before, and it had a kind of first wave of films that included uh, Mad- Madam Freedom, which was the film we watched yeah. at uni. Um, that was 1954, I, I believe, and all of that changed when there was a, a kind of military coup in South-, South Korea after the after the Korean War, and the kind of the wounds are still very much open in so what i understand there's still quite a lot of um antagonism towards the japanese in korea and and the other way around to be fair um i know of um a few examples in the world of sumo in japan where korean sumo wrestlers would be deliberately held back for not being japanese and for being korean Mm. um so it is. It's really interesting to read upon on these relationships and how they they relate to films. Yeah, because it's it's so deep within their culture. I mean, it is their culture, and with that history, how deeply it still affects people. It's. It's. I mean, it's very. Yeah. It's it's so deep it's, and really um, heartbreaking and that it's still affecting people to this day I mean one of the uh, for lack of better words one of the unfortunate you know lasting things things I am not going to be able to word this correctly at all so my deepest apologies in advance 
one of the the horrendous things about the whole Korea-Japanese conflict is with Japan, um, they used what they refer to as comfort women. Mm. And it's not as nice as it sounds at all. I believe I think I've, I've heard of this before. Yeah, so these were women that they basically used and abused sexually. And mm-hmm. Korea still has um, institutions, essentially, for the survivors. Mm-hmm. They're still alive, and they're still those like those wounds are still very much open. So there's still a lot of a lot of bridges that are trying to be mended, but there's still a long way to go. I mean, the closest that I can think of for us to try and understand it is how things are between like England and both Ireland's Northern and yeah. Republic like everything that happened in like the 70s the 80s all the way up to even 2000s yeah with everything that happened with us with the bombings and everything we're still trying to you know come to terms with each other in a sense I'm, I'm we're the... still bridging our yeah, <laughs> I mean the the, the thing that... with thing people don't tend to realize with with that mm. is that the it's not as ancient history as you think it is, no, and a, even more so between Britain and Ireland. But it, yeah. but like as you say, there are still institutions that offer support to those comfort women now, which yeah. makes me think that it that it must must have been kind of it can't have been all that long ago if they're still. No. So if it's still a fresh memory in your mind, then then it's going to cause a lot of trauma. But in in the same way that Japan has a really interesting history and how its kind of identity as a nation was bruised so much by the Second World War after they had to surrender, that kind of hurt the country's ego a lot. Yeah, and we see that in in their art, in their you know the music, their their films. That's one of the the themes that you see in in both Chan Wook and um, Bung's um, in their films, because it's it's something that's referred to as Han. I'm still learning exactly what it means because Han, in and of itself, is such a complex sort of cultural. I don't know the English word for it. This is where my linguistics are like. I know it in Dutch. I can kind of explain it in Dutch, but what is it in English? <laughs> but it's it's like this ideology, this it's such a core part of Korea and like as as good as we get with Westerners trying to explain it, it's it's it gets glossed over as basically the, the grief and the struggle and the pain that one feels and it's just like there's so much more to it than that. And it's one of those sort of concepts, ideologies, that's not that easy to explain and define. It's it, it kind of reminds me of trying to explain the word faith to a Dutch person. We don't have the word faith in in Holland. Uh, we don't have that word in in Dutch. So it's like, how do you explain something like faith? So I think for a white person to try and understand and explain what Han means. Because it's so much more than struggle and pain and grief. Because it's it's a generational thing as well, but also not. And it's just it's very complex. 
And it's one thing that I, I definitely, if you want to learn anything about Korean culture, um, definitely try and try and find definitions for Han. I think when um when it comes to the diff when it comes to the difference between European mm-hmm. and Asian cultures, Asian cultures have, seem to have a a lot better grasp of coming to terms with their past than mm. the Westerners do. Because I know that um in Japan they saw it as quite important to kind of come to terms with what happened under their imperial regime. They're very very careful as to what they do and say now is a kind of kind of the difference between japan's attempts to remember its past and germany's because remember they were on the same side was Mm. that germany have kind of disassociated themselves and kind of in a way trying to pretend that it didn't exist and trying to move on from it whereas japan have kind of conceded what they did wrong and have for for a while been coming to terms with it and i think that's that's a good example of how eastern culture works a lot differently to western ones whereas from a dutch perspective the way that i was taught about second world war that differed so greatly to how british people were taught about second world war and how each country views germany in this situation is is different because like with from your point of view like germany just like glosses over it but from growing up in in holland we kind of saw it as you know they're trying to make amends they don't want to rub salt in the wound so it's just like we're deeply ashamed of what's happened we're going to try and move on from this and not you know not rock the boat and be like hey remember when we really fucked up on this <laughs> it's just I like mean, yeah we've we fucked up on this like we're we're gonna try and not do this again we're gonna try and just move on and grow for the better and try not to make the same mistakes i know that germany's it, um attempts to kind of move on come from a a place of deep personal shame at what the country did yeah, yeah. um and I think that that's why, in terms of countries now, I think it's really important to think of Germany now as a completely different country mm. to Germany then, because because of how how much has changed and how kind of deep the the sense of shame in a way goes yeah. in Germany. Like they they don't condone any of its past actions. They're just like that. That happened. That was absolutely awful. We're going to do everything we can to not do that again. But when it comes to Eastern culture, their kind of their kind of tenets of honor and things like that, that's where it comes into place with dealing with what happened in the past and coming to terms with it. Like Mm. I've got a couple of Japanese films on my Prime video to watch. I've got Seven Samurai and Tokyo Story, which are both apparently classics which I've never seen. They're both Japanese films. But Mm. um I'm really looking forward to it because it's something that I can never tire of learning of different different mm. countries' cultures by learning it through their films. That's the way that I kind of accumulate different cultures and mm. come to know them. Mm. Uh, I think, oh my god, Tokyo Story. It's been a while since I saw that, I think. If it's the one that I'm thinking of. They're both available to rent on Prime Video for one ninety nine yeah. each at the moment, so... 
I took advantage of that while I could. They're also available on the BFI player, in case anyone wants to listen to them. Um, but moving on from Train to Busan, I then went and looked up um, another Bong Joon-ho film after watching Parasite. I'd, I have got Snowpiercer still to watch. I haven't I haven't watched that yet. Um, but I watched I watched Mother, which was a film from 2009, so just mm-hmm. over 10 years ago. And have you have you seen Mother Angel? I haven't actually. Haven't. I'm, I'm ashamed to admit I haven't watched that, but I have watched Snowpiercer and I watched the American. Wait, because there's no um, the TV series. Yeah, that's the TV series. Thank you for translating. Because <laughs> there's there's the the American film, which I mean, I say American film. It is Bong Joon Ho, but it's it's an American. It's a Hollywood film yeah. that he did. It's a co-production uh, with, between Korea and Hollywood. Yeah. I want to say Luke Evans, but it's not Luke Evans. Chris it's Evans. Different. That's the Evans. Thank you, Chris Evans. And it's just like, oh my god. Oh my god, what even just what? And the TV series, I don't know how I'm gonna cope with the TV series because, like, the film, oh, like, when I mentioned, like, the, the classism, like, with, with Bong Juno, when he, when, when he says, fuck the bourgeois, he means it, he says it with his entire chest, and he does it so poetically. Snowpiercer is just like, it's, it's beautiful. That's and a it's, really impressive it's, cast it's as well. Like, it's a yeah. really good cast. It's a, an international cast as well. There's uh, Chris Evans and John yeah. Hertz in it. Yeah. Um, Ed Screen's in it. I want to say Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton's in it as well, yeah, yeah. Which, which was great. Mm. But anyway, Mother from 2009, which is yeah. before Snowpiercer, it's, um, mm. it's about a mother, strangely enough, given its title. And um, she's she's a kind of a, a widow middle-aged woman living in a small Korean town, and she has a son who's got, um, I think it's described as, uh, what's, it, what's it called? Um, developmental disabilities, I, I, I think it's phrased, mm. on the the, the, the blab. It's our intelligence disability, or however it's phrased. Um, and the basically he's... A girl is murdered in, in this small town, and her son is accused, um, and she goes to out to prove prove his innocence. And like we as viewers are led to believe that he's innocent throughout most of the film, and then the big twist at the end. And uh, again, big spoiler warning: if you haven't watched it and want to, pause the podcast, go and watch the film, come back. But the big twist at the end is that we were all wrong, and that her son actually was the killer. But she still gets her son freed and sends the wrong man to prison to protect her son. Oh wow! Yeah, it's it's a great film. It's a great watch. Um, it there were bits where I was kind of, especially when it comes to the son. Um, like I think it was handled okay with the kind of. Uh, learning disability angle um, a little, some bits of it left me feeling a little bit uncomfortable but again I kind of put it down to cultural differences and a lot of it with artistic license because yeah he probably would have faced quite a lot of um, discrimination where where he was it, but it's, a, it's an intriguing watch certainly mm. okay that's that's still on my, my list to watch I just haven't 
it's on the FI player. I know, I'm, just, I'm on you with like Snowpiercer, where it's just like, how have you not watched Snowpiercer? And I'm just like, yeah, I haven't watched Mother yet. I should. I really should. I'd actually uh, bought it on Blu-ray, but then discovered it on BFI player because I, I had a free trial to it. So I watched it on there the other night and thoroughly, thoroughly. Again, it's another example of how he kind of constructs a narrative to kind of lead making you think one thing and then kind of keeping something hidden behind his back and revealing it when you least expect it it's because the the whole genius of the thing is like we're shown the event just before the girl is murdered and like we're shown completely the wrong sequence of events to throw us off the scent yeah that seems to be a a korean thing where it's like you get shown you know certain things happening but it's like it's not everything that's happening yeah you're only getting shown either one point of view or it's edited down. And it's, so it's, it's something like that's it, yeah. so rare to like Western eyes to see to see someone be brave enough to actually show the audience the wrong thing in order to show them the right thing later on. And it it kind of he manages to pay off everything, even if it feels kind of weird or out of place at first, he will make it pay off in the end. Like it, the, it's the... yeah, it's the thing where it's just like don't judge a book by its cover, and appearances can be misleading. Yeah, and as you say, I get a lot of there's a lot of um, parables of class in Bong Joon Ho's films. As in this one too, um, you kind of shown the the way kind of different people live in Korea. They can. The mother's in a low-paying job in a lot of debt, and um, she ends up being sued by some people because her son apparently broke some golf clubs they owned. It's um, it's obviously uh, something that sticks in Bong Joon-ho's craw quite a lot, and mm. some something that he's constantly wanting to push back against, which is admirable in itself. Mm. And how? Having heard the premise for Snowpiercer, I can see kind of where that influence will be in there as well. Yeah. Have you watched um, Okja? I haven't. I know it's on Netflix, isn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, I don't know whether it still is. I can probably have a look now. It was last time I looked. Um, I looked the other day because I've got it on my watch list to watch later. But um, as I say, the really frustrating thing is the... The, the interesting films from earlier in his career that I really like the sound of are really difficult to get hold of. Um, yeah. Like his film Memories of Murder from, from earlier in his career is about like a, a real-life murder case that was only just recently solved. Mm. And the, the whole thing sounds really intriguing, but to get a, a second-hand DVD or Blu-ray copy costs a couple of hundred quid. And it's not available on any streaming sites at all, which is quite mm. frustrating, especially in kind of the modern day and age where it seems like everything is available. Like yeah. her, her fingers. When when something you really want isn't there, it it's twice as difficult to stomach when everything else is available. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things of like, right, who can I contact to try and buy this legally and. It's like, do I have any friends that has friends? And and then, then just to like, rub okay, salt, no. <laughs> just to rub sauce, salt in the wounds. Um, mm. it was it was announced for a Criterion release, but it's an America only release, 
which just r- rubs salt in the wound even more. Because I get um, Criterion Blu-rays all the time, and, and I would I... absolutely snap the hand off for that. But sorry, but the the K-pop stand within is just raging so much because like whenever um, K-pop groups like a few years ago were just like we're doing a world tour, and it'd be like a lot of Asian countries and America. <laughs> And I was just like, how does like majority of like East Asian countries and America, like how is that a world tour? You're leaving out like the rest of Asia and like every other continent other than America. But like, like if you take away <laughs> if you take away the East Asian side of that, then that's a most Americans' entire worldview. It's just like just America. <laughs> There is that perspective, <laughs> and it's just it's so frustrating, just like being a fan of of all this, and then being like, okay, so how do we actually get this? And then, you know, like I said, there's there's eBay, which can be so incredibly expensive, and then there's um, like K-pop shops online and Korean culture shops online. Ten years ago, when I first started getting into K-pop, it was basically you get what you're given on eBay. If you can't find it on eBay, it's basically downloading it illegally. Those were the only options. Um, in the last, you know, past few years, more shops are selling internationally. Other shops are opening that are either based in Seoul or, you know, based throughout the world. And they'll sell things. They'll get it shipped in. There's things like G Market. And it's becoming more available, but there's still so much more to go. I mean, kind of re-releasing things is a recurring thing these days. Like, yeah. Uh... Murder on DVD, and then basically what 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 they do is they they take what is already in circulation out of circulation, so that when they release the new special collector's edition or whatever they call it, then that's yeah. the only version you can buy. They can mm. slightly mark it mark it up more when you're going to pay for it to have it. Yeah, which it's is because it's a special edition. You're like you know they're like oh well it's a special edition, so we are going to put the prices up a bit. But we're also going to make it available to more countries. And it's like, it's great that we get to financially support this incredible art. But can it maybe be kind of affordable too, please? Thanks. <laughs> well, this is where um, kind of independent streaming sites would really um, yeah. come into their own because the services like Mubi and BFI Player that have a lot of foreign films in their libraries that they could make a lot more use of as being like the premier place to see foreign films in western countries yeah um the thing is like they can really capitalize on this but i think there's a fear that because it's foreign because it's international there either isn't going to be a big enough audience yeah and i've had that excuse thrown at me for the past like what 2009 where it's just like oh people just aren't interested and like people are interested you're just too scared what exactly is is it that you're scared of because there's i mean yeah there's there's the cost of everything but it's like if it's a streaming site that will help minimize the cost to an extent i mean it's not going to be like the cheapest thing ever but it's 
it's it's I think especially with everything that's happening right now moving things online streaming international films online like movie and arte are doing um because i don't know much about the the bfi website uh-huh. um so it's like online streaming definitely because the the way that movie does that does things oh my goodness because oh, they have a selection that's on they only run it for a certain amount of times correct yeah yeah, yeah and so it is essentially got, an online cinema. They've got Portrait of a Lady on Fire on there at the moment, which is highly recommended yeah. too. Yeah, so that's a, an online streaming service that acts essentially as a cinema, because they do live streaming as well. Yeah, and they do kind of Q&As like, with directors as well. Yeah, which I think if other cinemas were to, to follow that lead, we could you know, try and maybe survive what's going on a little bit better. It's not the answer at the moment, but I think if people, you know, were dedicated enough and it's just, we need to move with what's working, but we kind of also need to make what can work actually work. It's both sides that need to put in effort. I mean, the the thing is with foreign and international film is it's always going to be a niche market but there is still money to be made in a niche market that you that you provide good service for because then if you're providing something that that niche will want that that niche will spread because people because it will spread via word of mouth and people will will wonder what people what other people see in it in this thing it's like it's how the nickelodeons did it yeah. When they first started, people were just like, do we really want to be watching these like picture films? Is this really going to take off? When films first started off you know, with the Nickelodeons, they didn't think it was going to take off at all. And look where we are now. I mean, I think, I think there's also the... these, sorry, there, there's also like the othering of international foreign films as well. Yeah. Where it's just like, oh, it's foreign. Why would people want to watch something in a foreign language and it's like why not it's the, it you know i remember especially in prevalent America. in um american and to a lesser extent british culture is that me- most americans are seen to just want american things and it's a kind of slight slightly less of a way in britain because most of our culture comes from america in the first place but the, there is a kind of a school of thought, so to speak, that English-speaking people only want English-speaking things. Which, mm. to be to be fair, I'm not denying that a lot of them were. But I'm I'm also going to go out on a limb and say that if if they tried setting things in in different languages, then they probably would enjoy it. It's they like would. as as Bong Joon Ho said himself. I think it was at the the Golden Globes or one of the awards um, that. If people can get over that kind of one-inch high hurdle of subtitles, then they're opening themselves up to an entire world of cinema that they would otherwise miss. I love that, Seth. I love that. I just, oh, when I read that, I actually clapped. I was just like, yes, this is what I've been trying to say for years. Because I've been trying to access, you know, foreign media since I basically moved back here. And the amount of resistance that I've come across from so many different places and people, and it's just like, people just aren't going to be interested. It's like, yes, they are, if you just 
give it a chance. If you say, you know, if you tell people, you know, what ways these foreign films are amazing, they will listen. Instead, it's, oh, but it's like, it's in a foreign language. So like, you know, there, there's that little con. It's just like, is it really that much of a con? But then I think that's also reflective of how I grew up being you know in the community that I was mm. in the country that I was where it's just like everything's in its native tongue everything you will only know <laughs> you'll only know what people want and what they don't want if you provide it to them first yeah you can't yeah. say people mm. don't want this thing if you're not providing it for them and giving them the chance to not want it mm. it's like no, I, that I thought um, general with cinemas I thought Which... after the um, the Oscars that there was going to be, and I think there's it's struck really unlucky, especially with the pandemic and what have you. Because yeah. I I genuinely thought when the Oscars went on that this it would kind of kickstart a an in, a more mainstream interest in international films and, and foreign films because because of this high profile film that. If you noticed, after it had got all the awards buzz, it suddenly mm. became a box office success everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and because of because of that exposure, I was expecting it to kind of go and trickle down, so to speak, to different mm. films. And I thought it was going to start this whole new boom of not only Asian but all sorts of foreign cinemas. But it's yeah. it couldn't have come at a worse time because, actually speaking, I, I mentioned portrait of a lady on fire a few minutes ago mm -hmm. and that was the last film i saw in cinema before they were closed down i went to uh independent cinema to watch it and mm -hmm. um and and that was actually a pretty full screening like mm -hmm. I, I was expecting it because it was a french film to to have like me and maybe one other person but it was yeah. surprisingly busy and i think it's because of the mainstream attention that parasite got that it's yeah. had a knock-on effect to other foreign films that people are now willing to give a chance to. Yeah, and it's just, if other films had that kind of attention as well, like, the amount of films that we could actually enjoy, it's just, it's going to open so many doors, not just for filmmakers, but for the audiences as well. Because I know... Um, within my friend circle, we're all getting fed up of the same types of storyline. Like romantic comedies, we feel have gotten very stale. Action films have gotten very stale. Even zombie films kind of tend to get stale. Things go in cycles. And it's like if we open up our world to international films, there's so many different forms of storytelling because of different cultures. Like, what are the chances of us actually getting bored then? It's not just just that, but it's it's the experience of seeing this different culture that can help mm -hmm. a lot of people accept more foreign culture. It can really help a widespread acceptance of different cultures yeah. and beliefs if we're shown this as a kind of like, and it it's not just foreign things. It's kind of the there's different narratives that get kind of suppressed even in kind of regional british productions like yeah. there's, uh, there's a lot of like scottish films that go unnoticed and um and films based in the north of england and things like that and it's it's through seeing these things and through experiencing these cultures that people yeah. begin to accept them basically they yeah cuz when i moved back um to to england there was one particular soap that I started watching 
and it was on if I remember correctly, it was on S four C. It's um That's the Welsh, Welsh one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I remember it was like the Welsh Emmerdale and it had um I always get his name wrong. Is it um Owen Griffith? Yeah. He was in Fantastic Four. He's also in Glee. I I've I've been watching Glee. <laughs> oh, I I watched Quarterback today, so I'm still quite emotional oh, about that. I I actually managed to watch the next episode after that. I've never gone past the quarterback. That was the last and episode I've, I ever watched of Glee. That's, yeah, and I've managed to to get my emotions somewhat together and watch the next episode. <laughs> so I'm kind of like I'm proud. Um but yeah, he's he's in this, and I'm just like, oh my goodness! And his Welsh accent is not like he's got a British accent and a, well English, British. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's like he's got an English accent, and I'm just like, please let please please let it drop. Let let me hear the Welsh. And like the the first thing that I ever saw him in was, and I'm I am so sorry for Welsh speakers out there. I'm about to butcher your language. If I get it correctly, it's a miracle. Um, yeah, there's the the Welsh drama. Um, so, um, Poboli Quim, and that's where I first saw him I have, in. I have a friend, I mm. have a, a friend from Wales who who talks about Pebbly Quim before. Pebbly <laughs> Quim. Oh God, that's that just sounds like a double entendre. Yeah. Pebbly Quim. Well, um, I watching that, I I started to learn a bit of what because the way that I learn languages is by just immersing myself in the language, just watching it. And I just sort of pick it up, and then with subtitles, I kind of translate it. It's apparently it's a weird way of learning languages. I'm like, is it? I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I, the only thing that I do remember from watching this, this, um, the this soap is Pingripop, which is microwave. That's basically that, and Borada is the only Welsh that I remember from like twenty odd years ago. I started watching it in slang for microwave. So, it's a slang for microwave. It's, it's not actually slang. the word for microwave. It's not. Right. Well, I've just learned something new after like 20 odd years. <laughs> but yeah, like, I was really proud of that. <laughs> the, it, it's like um, all the works of uh, Ken Loach as well. Mm. If a if a narrative doesn't fit into this kind of restrictive yeah. box, then it's kind of labelled as being an indie film, or it doesn't get an, as much get... Ex- exposure. But it, it's because a lot of executives are kind of frightened of pushing the envelope with new narratives yeah. with kind of minority characters. Like um, I remember watching Fish Tank back at uni as well, which I really enjoyed which was a like a working class story from oh my god that film yeah council that, estates that yeah i kind we... of i still don't know what to make of that film because that's got michael fassbender, fassbender in it, right? yeah yeah um i'm still i'm still processing that <laughs> it's, 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 it's always been so, so english that's such an english film it's always been a belief of man it's really important for people to see people like them from their walk of life represented yeah. on screen because yeah. it's There's... it's like i'll never forget the, the first time i ever heard 
a Hull accent on the TV. And, and I, I know this is, sounds really trivial, but the first time I ever heard a Hull accent on TV was when Lucy Beaumont presented a programme during the City of Culture year. And I felt really, I felt really good about it because I, I'd heard someone who sounds like me on the TV. Yeah. It then kind of validated my my kind of culture even though being from Hull isn't particularly a culture it's just nice to hear an accent and I think that's that's the same of all walks of life once you've seen and heard someone who looks and sounds like you on the tv you suddenly feel validated in being yourself it's that thing of oh my god people know that like my people exist yeah Kind exactly, and, and, it, and it kind of goes from for, from that low level thing of hearing someone yeah. with the same accent to going to to seeing uh, queer characters represented on television and more yeah. black characters and everything like that. Yeah, it's like people of color, different like abilities, disabilities, cultures. There's just so many different shades of oh my god, that's somebody like me, and you know it comes in different shades and strengths, and instead it's yeah i i personally would like to see a lot more variety just because that's what i see in my own life well, it's, it's and i want that, that reflected it's, it's not <laughs> just that but it makes it it makes the films we watch on the television we watch more interesting to mm. see different things rather than having yeah. to watch the same story the same straight white people it, every week it gets them, air freshener vanilla <laughs> yeah we, we want it it adds color and it adds variety to and tells different stories like um like how big a, a breath of fresh air that jordan peele has seemed it's mm. like black filmmakers have been making films like that or similar to that for years yeah. but they just haven't had the platform for mm. for it to be seen by a mass audience like Jordan Peele had. Yeah. It's just... We need more of it. Yeah, we do. And it's just, again, with that, that othering of, oh, but people aren't going to want to watch it. It's just like, people aren't going to want to watch it if you keep saying people aren't going to watch it. And most of the point, people aren't going to watch it if it's not available to watch. Yeah. If you don't provide it, then people can't see it. They can't know that they want it. It's like yeah. my so, some of my favourite films have been watching watching about different cultures and different experiences. Like mm. um, my favourite film of all time is The Godfather, which is, of course, steeped in Sicilian family values and things like that. And it's, it's really interesting to me to see these different... Obviously, always not from a positive standpoint because there yeah. are mafioso or whatever but um but it was just different to watch a different culture represented on screen yeah and i really like the works of jordan peele because it's watching different stories that i hadn't seen before yeah and even with like um italian culture the godfather with that being predominantly sicilian mm-hmm. like my family is northern italian and yeah, that there's this saying that um, it's it's not exactly the best saying either. But uh, whenever I visited like my dad's and my nonna, that it kind of got thrown around a little bit whenever the South got mentioned, and it was usually basically the, the saying is Italy stops at Rome, mm-hmm. and it's just like oh my god. Just... It's a kind of it's, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of refreshing to hear that the north south divide isn't a typically isn't just exclusively yeah. an English thing. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it seems to be a bit of a, a common thing in a lot of countries. But it, um, it, it's not just mafia stories that Italian culture says it's got a, a yeah. rich history of westerns as well, of course, with Sergio Leone, and, and of course it goes mentioning that uh, we lost Ennio Mor- Morricone yesterday. Yeah. yeah, the composer behind the um, the scores to most of Sergio Leone's films and the Hateful Eight, one of Quentin Tarantino's films. As well, um, so that's of course linking to the Italian connection because, of course, Ennio mm. was was Italian. Yeah, as was Sergio Leone in the films that he made with Clint Eastwood and what have you. Yeah, it's so like you can like with the the Italian other. Oh my goodness, um, phrasing. Oh. There, there is quite a difference with westerns. Like you can see the ones that are like the spaghetti westerns, the one that were made, you know, in in Italy, um, mm-hmm. in Chita, and then you can see the difference with the the westerns that were predominantly in is it Nevada? Yeah, I, well, I want to Nevada. say yes. Yeah, the the ones that are filmed in Hollywood uh-huh. or in America, you can see that there is a difference in the style and the storytelling and just the general feel of them. I kind of want to say that the Italian ones are more interesting as well. I is mean, I, I'm kind of a bit biased, so yeah, I'll agree with that. I've, I've, I've <laughs> kind of have never been able to see the appeal of John Wayne, to be honest, because I've, I've kind of, and this, the, the following sentence is going to sound blasphemous to a lot of people, but I kind of equate John Wayne with being a kind of, 60s and 70s Vin Diesel in that he own, he's made a, a multiple decade career out of playing himself repeatedly it's essentially the same character just different name yeah yeah and once Genghis Khan for some reason because whitewashing <laughs> that's only what it is whitewashing like Oh, no, I remember having a... Well, I was heading towards having an argument with a lecturer in my first year um, because, uh, yeah, we were looking at social problem films in the 40s mm-hmm. and we were looking at Pinky as well as Gentleman's Agreement and the lecturer mentioned about how Hollywood didn't have a lot of people of colour actors or actors of colour and I was just like, yeah, because they didn't want them. They were being racist. She's like, oh, but like, if they came forward, like, you couldn't exactly have like a, a black actor in like a white face. And she's like, um, white passing actors existed back then. Like, they were available. They just didn't want to cast them because ultimately they're black. They're white passing. They're still black. They're not going to be accepting of them. It's like. And if the the actors that were white passing came forward as well, actually, I am of African descent, their careers could be like destroyed because of institutionalized racism. And he just wasn't quite on board with all of that. And I'm just like, you know what, I'm going to drop this because I'm sick. I had a, like a chest infection at the time. I'm just like, I'm dropping but it whatever just <laughs> it's in the sauces you've provided but uh, whatever go off on one <sighs> and it's it can still remains the case today that the actors yeah. are there they're just sometimes not used when they could be 
it's like the again it's the thing of like there's the opportunity people just don't want to take up on that opportunity instead they'll just other so um that's that's our kind of a discussion on a korean film that went off on many multiple <laughs> tangents um the all of the films that we mentioned are available to purchase on your usual streaming places wherever you buy your films you can get them on blu-ray as well i've got most of them on blu-ray um i've um as for what else i've been up to during this month when the cinemas have been shut and i've had nothing to do but sit at home and watch movies i haven't actually done all that much watching movies because as it turns out it's really hard to motivate yourself when you've got nothing to do um but but I, I I have reviewed a few. I started um, a new recurring um, article last week. I'm having a look at the history and evolution of animation over on my website. Which is, uh, I started off with the early years, the, the, and I've just brought the narrative up to Walt Disney. So um, that's a, really interesting to see how uh, animation was used as propaganda even in the 1910s. Yeah. Um, because I'm not sure whether you, you'd have done the same module I did at uni, but um, mm. the American Animation History module. Yeah. Um, but uh, essentially there's a short film called The Sinking of the Lusitania, mm. uh, which is from 1918, I want to say, but it could be 1919, um, which was essentially a piece of war propaganda for the First World War, because the sinking of the Lusitania was the event that eventually led to America joining the First World War. And it's mm-hmm. it's interesting to look at that and the parallels between the propaganda work that Disney did for the US Army in, in the Second World War. Yeah. And the animation had always been used for propaganda and could have always been used for that case. Yeah, the, the... I, I remember we looked at, um, was it Snafu? Commander Pro- Snafu? Private Snafu, yeah. Private Snafu, yeah. Which, is, uh, which stands for Situation Normal, All Fucked Up. Yeah, <laughs> which isn't that relevant now. <laughs> no, but it was relevant then. Of... No, I mean like everything, like the situation's normal. Not like we're currently living through a snafu uh, right now. Yeah, yeah. That's... I think it's significantly more than a snafu, but um. Yeah, I mean, with with us attempting ease lockdown, it's like situation normal. It's like it's it's not normal. Please stay home. <laughs> As somebody with a weakened um, immune system, please, I beg you, stay home. <laughs> like, to get political. Watch. Yeah, just to get political. Like, our government can be following other governments across the world and actually, you know, taking accountability for what's happening. Um, I mean, there's, uh, I can't remember who it was, but there's um, somebody that's essentially trying to bail out theatres at the moment, That's not bail Rishi, them out. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. Yeah, yeah, he's just trying to save what's left of the theatre industry and that should be down to the government. That's what we're paying taxes for. Oh, it's, are you talking I mean, about the guy from the government who announced the rescue package? There, there is that. That's that. Personally, I think that's come quite a few months too late. And it's just when everything was was happening, it's like the the rich multi-billion companies were getting bailed out. I mean, they're multi-billion companies. They've got the money to bail themselves out. And the companies that 
do actually need help, like you know, your local independent shops, they're the ones that are left to dry. Well, if you and... follow the paper trail, you'll find that the reason they got bailed out is because most of them are donors to the Tory party. Mm-hmm. Which is... <laughs> but, but we're getting very far off topic here, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring us back round to the um, animation because yeah. I... I uh, introduced my boyfriend to The Three Little Pigs, the Disney short film from 1933, um, which is so utterly charming. Um, I I think that's probably one of the best things I've found about having Disney Plus is watching some of the old shorts and just being completely charmed by it, even though some of them are nearly 100 years old. They still bring a smile to my face. But um, one of the things is that, of course, some of them are cut down for... Uh, reasons of sensitivity, especially the three yeah. little pigs, which has a a scene of a a kind of the wolf dressed up as a peddler, but he's dressed as a really stereotypical Jewish peddler. Yeah, and, uh, quite a lot of anti-Semitism in in Disney, which is quite interesting. It's it's <laughs> actually it's actually a fairly complex topic. Yeah. Um. To be completely fair, um. The there are a few employees who used to work for Walt Disney who are Jewish who said that he couldn't he couldn't have been further from anti-Semitic at all. But then of course there is the there is the odd reference and things like that. As I say, it, it's not a it's cut and dry complex. issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I chose interesting instead of complex. It's yeah. Because like, wasn't Disney supposed to be of Jewish descent as well? Didn't he have I'm, Jewish heritage? I'm, I'm not sure. Or is that like a, a rumored thing? Because um, I haven't done enough research into that. My next um, animation history post is going to be about Disney, so I'll I'll, I'll be doing some research into him soon. Um, but I, speaking of the Disney Plus, I also reviewed Hamilton. That I published that yesterday. yesterday. Oh yeah, I I watched Hamilton and. I also watched Frozen too. Right I watched after. Frozen. I, well, I, I, I saw Frozen <laughs> 2 in cinemas like last year. But, um, mm. I really like it. But I really like the first Frozen. I just think it was completely overexposed. Mm. Um, Whereas, can, can I give a very controversial opinion? Yeah. I don't the hype behind Hamilton. Like, the music was... I like the music, but the the choice of storytelling in Hamilton, I I just I don't understand the hype. I'm pretty much the exact opposite in that I saw it on the West End, and I think it's the best thing I've ever seen in a theatre. It, it's absolutely wonderful. It's the the, the choreography is stunning. The, the, oh the mu- yeah. The the music is is cutting and it, it, mm-hmm. it's a it's a revolutionary show about a revolution strangely enough because of how different and new it seems yeah no i'll i'll agree with sequels. like the the choreography and the music it's just the, the the form of storytelling i was a bit like i don't get the hype like it's i get the it's hype kind of like a history music. lesson it's a history yeah, lesson within a musical it is and i did a selective it, history like, lesson but... it kind of felt like History and bullet points, but set to really awesome music. Yeah, and, and like of course, the, the way that the lyrics over were. sections as well. Yeah, it's like the the music and the lyrics 
yeah. Like, the music, definitely. The lyrics were just like, okay, so this is what happened through history. And then the theatre kind of happened afterwards kind of thing. I really like the... the I feel really awful, but it's like, it's no Les Miserables. (laughs) um... That's not a fair comparison. I mean, they're both revolutions, but I just, I feel like I'm being really mean and harsh, but like, I just... I really like the, the, um, the choice of colorblind casting for it as well. That's um, something something that I really like about it, because it it adds a bit of variety and it kind of I see it, it as a show me. I mm. I I see it as a a choice to show what America mm. could be like yeah. in terms of multiculturalism. Yeah. Cuz like as as far as I'm aware of like they they cast on talent which yes. definitely should be you know the forefront. Uh-huh. And then yeah, it was just for me the the storytelling of it wasn't what I'm, I I prefer. So I'm just like, I was expecting everything to be really amazing and like absolutely everything fantastical. And I'm like, it, parts of it felt a bit like horrible history, not horrible histories. Um, oh, the, the rap battles that that's on YouTube. can't remember what it's called but it, it, unless it is actually just rap battles but there's the historical rap battles on YouTube and it kind of felt a bit like that at times there's a musical out next year as well which is um, about a Latin American neighbourhood mm. which is very much I think written about some of his experiences I think Ooh. which I, the the story of Hamilton probably caught his eye because Hamilton was a Caribbean immigrant just like Lin-Manuel Miranda is because he's mm. from Puerto Rico. Mm. Um, I'm not sure where Alexander Hamilton was from. It's somewhere in the Car- or the Caribbean, as the Americans put it. Mm. Um, but I reviewed that. The review of that was put up yesterday. I'd also... Um, I'm doing Train Spotting this week, which is a... A Scottish film from the nineties. Have you ever watched Train Spotting? I haven't. No, it's one of those classics where it's just like I need to watch it, but I just never get round to it. I always opt for something else. I'll have, just, um, I'm not proud got, of that. I should have watched the, it by now. I'm going to watch the first and the second one back to back. Um, it was recommended to me by a, a friend and follower of my website, Ian. So I'll just give a shout out to Ian Judson for recommending that and many other films he's kept me busy over the last couple of months mm. by um constantly adding films to my list to review which i will get around to before the cinema's open again and i'm between writing about animation and other things um have you been up to much over the past month anything interesting just k-dramas predominantly <laughs> it's yeah it's just i think it, Netflix if, um... and disney plus like the amount of times that I've watched something that's in the Lilo and Stitch universe. <laughs> that, that 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 reminds me actually that um, Spike Lee's new films on Netflix. I should get onto that. Ooh. It's um, Defy Bloods, which sounds uh, 
really strange when a white man says it, but it's spelt da as in D A da five bloods. Yeah. So it's um, it's a story of black soldiers in the Second World War, I, I, I believe. So very much a Spike Lee film. Yeah. Um, I really liked Black Klansman, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing Da Five Bloods, which just sounds worse the more I say it. Pro- probably sounds a lot cooler when Spike Lee says it. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. There is no way of like saying that as a white English person and not sounding embarrassing. Whereas if I say it, I just feel like I just sound more Dutch. <laughs> da like... Five Bloods. Yeah, the five bloods. <laughs> are there any? Yeah, I just feel like this. Are there any really interesting Dutch films you can think of? Not that I. That this this is the thing that's like really irritating me and has for like the past twenty odd years. I can't seem to find any Dutch films, and if I do, they're the very mediocre films. I've seen that just aren't worth. I've watching. seen a few films <laughs> about one Dutchman in particular. Mm. Uh, there's, I think I've seen about three different films about Vincent Van Gogh. Did... <laughs> Sorry, it's just that moment of just like, oh, I'm, I'm expecting you to say Vincent's name. Is it just, yeah, because that's yeah. For those that don't know, I'm very like Vincent's my baby. Like I love him so so. There's much. also um, like as a Van Gogh. And there's yeah. that meme with, like Van going, Van going, Van gone, and it's just like no, no, it's Hoch, Hoch. There's a really uh, interesting anecdote that me and um, Angel, we 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 were filming a student film in our, I think it was our f- first year, mm. where um we <laughs> we were talking about Vincent Van Gogh, and I pronounced it like that because that's how I know to pronounce it, and uh, Angel's told me before, and. Uh, this girl on our course went, don't you mean, don't you mean Vincent Van Gogh? And and we were like, no, it's Van Gogh. And she went, no, it's 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 Van Gogh. And and, and Angel with a with a dead straight face goes, I'm Dutch. I know how it's pronounced. Yeah, I I was oh I just it's it's that thing of like when a non-Dutch person tries to tell a Dutch person how to pronounce a Dutch name, and I'm just like, I'm Dutch. He's Dutch. It's Hoch. You're mispronouncing it in the French way. Just no. <laughs> I'm just like I just oh I'm I'm very overprotective of Vincent, even though I don't have much right to be, and it's just. I I just believe that there's a lot of respect in a person's name, and if you mispronounce it, and if you do it deliberately, it's just it's it's a form of disrespect. This is so something I'm, that I um, that I'd seen on Facebook as well, uh, not Facebook, Twitter. Sorry, that that caught my eye. It's, um, stories of people with um, foreign names who come to England and give themselves anglicised names to make life easier for themselves. Um, I, which really breaks my heart in a lot of ways, to be honest. It's exhausting. I had that this morning. Um, like, uh, you know, I've I had a few phone calls, and not a single person. No, sorry, correction. Um, I had one call out of I think it was five I had today. One person got my name right, and that's because she was my physiotherapist from like a few years ago, so she remembered me. And she was just like, oh, hang on, wait, I, I said your name wrong. And she corrected herself. And I'm like, 
Betsy, this is why you were my favourite physiotherapist. <laughs> you try. <laughs> and, and it's like when I was like trying to pronounce the Korean names earlier, it's um, yeah. I've I probably murdered them and, and said them completely wrong, but I tried. You know, um, like the one of the actors in Train to Busan, Ma Dong Seok, is he has a westernized name, Don Lee, that he uses for his western productions. But I just think it's very disrespectful to expect people to change their name, their identity, because yeah. you can't be bothered to learn how to say it. Because there's there's so much importance in a person's name. It's there's a lot of history and there's a lot of like cultural context as well because like with me transitioning when I chose like Angel's my middle name and I go by Angel because it's just easier for everyone all around my first name it's very important to me there's a lot of significance to it and like I'm not very willing to just give it out to people because it's something special to me and for me it is my name. I chose it. There's meaning behind it, and there's certain. It, it's Italian, and there's like certain sort of Italian cultural context to it. And I feel really weird as a white person being like, "There's cultural context to it," but like each country does have its own cultural things. But certain countries' cultures, certain continents' culture, just gets ripped apart and abused, and. I, I do feel like we need to be more respectful and mindful and compassionate with different cultures. Would you be comfortable I, with me um, saying your first name on the podcast? Because I was going to try and pronounce it how I think it's pronounced. You know what? Go for it. Luciana? No. No. <laughs> it's Luciani. Luciani. Okay. Yeah, Luciana is feminine. Right. So Luciana is the masculine. Luciani is sort of the, the neutral it's technically sure. plural but like it is and it isn't but it's yeah it's um derived from luci which is light mm-hmm. so it's there's there's that <laughs> but i have been called luciana well sorry luce luciana all day and i'm just like so close but just just <laughs> there's an i at the end just just not an a it's an i well this is um something for me as well because i could have sworn there was an a at the end because i have kind of very slight dyslexia and it only kind of comes into effect at really strange times it's like i was telling someone the day uh, when the force awakens was first released i spent like six months calling the main villain rilo clen and not kylo ren because because i'd seen it written down and i thought it said rilo clen and not Mm. and not the right way as it was yeah yeah that's i i finally caught up with with that i just that that that's that's something in and of itself my god what what even was those films (sighs) i still enjoy them i like them I mean, I enjoyed them for like mindless entertainment, and I finally understand the means that John Boyega like tweeted about Hollywood and romances. Because when I saw them, I was just like, I feel like this is a spoiler, but like, what? (laughs) 
and now I get it. I totally get it. And of course, he's right. He's so right. And just, I, I just, what was that about? I also think that um... what was that about? What? Just no. I'm getting. Ooh, maybe so, uh... we should have that conversation privately because I yeah. don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my um, controversial opinion alarm. I actually think The Last Jedi is one of the best Star Wars films. I mean, all in all, it's, it's a good film. There's just this one particular scene where I'm just like, what? Is it where Finn kisses Rose? Okay, yeah, sorry. Two, two, because what was that about? Like, what ever happened to Fopin? Right. I wanted that to be a thing. That should that have been a thing. That so hard. I was just like, the way that they actually filmed that with the whole the music and then like the soft focus and the way that they looked at each other, the way that it was edited, especially like when they like get reunited and there's like the petals. Like I remember the bean petals. It was so like K drama romance. I like, I need to introduce uh, it to like. K-drama. I was really. I was really hoping in the the, the last film because it mm-hmm. looked for like a certain part of the film that they were going to try and make uh, Finn and Ray love interests, and I was thinking, no, this just doesn't compute at all. They don't need to be love interests. See that angle, like the the throughout like the last film when it was like it, I, I basically mentally I was just like, oh, look at Ray and her space husbands. I referred to to Poe and and, and Finn as her space husbands because it was just that but not from like a, a sexual point of view but like that platonic friendship that you have yeah. where it's just like you know these are my husbands they're my best friends like like they're the people that are my family and i love them to death like they were my own husband kind of thing like there are so few films that fo- there are so few films that focus on friendship as opposed to relationships and i think that's such an, yeah. an underserved niche that that sometimes characters can just be friends they, they, yeah. they, not every film needs a shoehorned romance which I, I, I think is a is a message i need to shout from the rooftops at most hollywood executives not um, every film needs a romance as an asexual, I completely and utterly agree with that because, like, <laughs> not everything has to be about sex. Leave your romance <laughs> out of my Star Wars. Yeah, I was just like, especially when it's as, like, oh my god, like, the whole, the it, it's been out for years, like, the whole thing between, like, Kylo and Rey and that scene... I was just like, what? What even? What was that even about? Like, what was that about? I still don't get it. What was that for? How did that serve the plot in any way, shape, or form? How did that move the story forward? Because it could just genuinely be a person just like being like, you're you're better than this. You can be better instead of you can be better than this. You know what? Because I'm a woman, love will save the man. I'm sick of that narrative of I a think, woman the um, man. I Just... think there's potential in us talking about Star Wars at a future date, but I, I, I yeah. think there can be multiple explanations for that. Like, for instance, mm. it could be a transference of force and uh, force energy, or something along those lines. Yeah, but because it's a different way than kissing, like. This is where I'm just like Spock. Spock had it right. <laughs> just... Except in the reboots where he had a romance with um, I can't remember her name now. Ahura, that's right. Yeah. yeah. 
What was that about as, as well? Why did we need that? Because sex sells. Even though we have an entire cack, that was basically his entire existence to just be promiscuous. I don't think I pronounced that right. <laughs> but like that that's that's what Kirk is for. That's that's what he does. Literally he does people. <laughs> that's how that that's how the plot gets driven. <laughs> but like Spock and Uhura I don't fully To be, f- to be fair to the um the rain Kylo aspect, I think mm. it has been something they've been hinting at the entire trilogy, although there's been overtones of some kind of relationship there. But that doesn't mean that they oh, have to do it. Abusive and violent and aggressive and just very, very unhealthy person to want to be with. I don't understand why somebody would want to actually be in a relationship with somebody who is genocidal. Because I I think it's viewed on different terms in a, a science fiction way as a Jedi Sith way that there was still a little bit of light side in him that was obvious throughout all of the films. And, uh, and I think that's the focus as opposed to character traits that we associate with humans. We're dealing with kind of sci-fi space wizards so dealing with kind of human ideals in a lot of ways. Which is the same way as to why Darth Vader turning at the end of Return of the Jedi, even though we've now seen him do all kinds of horrendous stuff in the prequels, it still has an effect because of that light side, dark side narrative point. Mm. Mm. Getting Um, back to the cinemas. Yeah, I'm just like, yeah, that's just I disagree and I'm I don't want this to turn into an argument. <laughs> and to, to be fair, we are already running at one and three quarter hours. Uh, and I, I can run want... for so many more hours just about that scene. <laughs> anyway, it's moving swiftly on. <laughs> so, um, cinema's supposed to be opening again next month, or later this month, or whenever they decide to open, which um, would have been a potential problem if they had stuck with the 10th of July because the problem was bugger all's coming out. Um, but as it happens, they're going to be reopening with 10A, which is, which is good. I'm looking forward to that. Um, although I would much rather wait longer until everyone can see it and wait longer until theatres can be opened completely. Yeah. Um, like I'm not particularly comfortable with the idea of going back to a cinema. Just like I don't really want to go to a theatre at the moment. I don't want to go to... But um, I think with the film industry being a massive money juggernaut that it is, it couldn't kind of sit on its hands for two, for as long as was probably needed. Sadly, yeah. I think um, as I said earlier, I think there's ways of trying to to sort of move on with things because I think. You know, with with lockdown easing, with my immune system being the way that it is, it's for somebody like me, it's dangerous as it is. There's people that are actually immune compromised, and it will literally kill them. It's just, it's too much too soon. I think we still need to find ways of coping with 
avoiding people, basically. The For thing cinemas, with... Yeah, I think with, with cinemas, at least doing online streamings, moving online, it could it could be a solution. There's moving new films online is that's a bridge that you can't you can't go back on because once once they start moving new films online and if it becomes as big a success as mm-hmm. as, as it would have been in the cinema then all of a sudden your cinemas become obsolete entirely because no one's because what once they've been shown a way that because don't forget that releasing films on streaming means that a whole lot more of the profits go back to the studios that made them because yeah. a, a, a cinema keeps x amount of of each ticket whereas when you release a film online you get pretty much all of the profits but so, so that, that that's a bridge that can't be can't you can't go back on i i think that's a bit of a, a black or white kind of viewing on it because there's a lot of things that you get from going to a cinema and you know it's it's kind of like saying oh having cds you you know we're not going to have concerts there's a lot that you experience in a cinema like viewing something on a big screen with your friends you know the whole thing of like meeting your friends at the cinema there's like the merchandise that you can get at cinemas it's an entire experience so but, to say that there's no going back, I think that's kind of, I mean, because we've got CDs now and like we can stream things, people are still wanting to go see live events. People are still wanting to go and do things in person. So I think it's not as black and white. I do really want to go back to the cinemas, but for the time being, I'll stream. Because I think the, that's the difference to me. The difference One of the reasons that... that I don't go to cinema as often as I would like to is because they're not accessible. I think the difference there is most people who are watching films at home mm. already have pretty big screens to view it on. And the difference between a fil- watching a film at cinema and live music is watching the music perform live is a different experience whereas when you're watching a film you're watching the same thing whether you're watching it on the cinema screen or on a tv screen plus it's a lot it's a whole lot cheaper to watch it at home especially Mm. if 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 you're going in for buying popcorn and drinks it's a whole lot cheaper to bring them in and watch it at home by that logic cinemas would have been obsolete anyways because but people the, would stop going to cinemas and just be like, I'll wait until Netflix. Yeah, well, I'll wait until it's no, but, Prime. But people because, do do that. Because but, the, the difference is, cinemas have the film first, as mm. it stands now. So that's mm. why cinemas aren't obsolete, because they're kind of the gatekeepers of the content that people want. Because if if something is available, people aren't going to wait six months until it's on Netflix. They'll want to watch it there and then. And that that is why cinema is still alive now even when most of things are heading online, it's because they get the product first. So so they get the attention of the masses first. But with how Netflix is going with its original films, it's bypassing the cinemas completely. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of... You but, know, it's, it's just two sides of the same coin. I just, I don't think that if things move online for the time being, that it's just going to stop cinemas from existing completely. I think it's just one of those things of if we make it clear it's a temporary measure. 
I think the the difference as well as to releasing a, a film on a platform like Netflix is you never get a a black and white knowledge of what the box office gross is because mm. because people don't pay for the film on Netflix they pay for the subscription yeah. you don't know how how much percent goes to each film so which is why executives prefer it to go to cinema because then they yeah. know the bottom line of what every film's end yeah because you, you can only go so far with streaming numbers yeah and, and it's not always not, that accurate not to mention how expensive films are to make then mm. executives are going to want to know that they're going to get a return on their investment in black and white which is mm. why cinemas still hold influence but if if each if each studio were to to move all of its distribution online through a either their own streaming service or a deal with someone else's then mm. that would be the kind of the beginning of the end for the cinema i think i don't think it'll be the beginning of the end i think that's a bit exaggerated but that's from my point of view of like because I do love cinema, but like from yeah. my own personal experience, it's like if it was more accessible to me, I would actually be going to cinema more often because it doesn't have subtitles, and I'm a person that needs subtitles. They're closing themselves off for people like me. They could do with more sort of um, autism-friendly screenings, but they're closing themselves off from those customers. If they're gonna claim that this is gonna be the death of cinema they're basically putting themselves in the coffin yeah i I, I suppose there's there's a way to look at it from either side (laughs) yeah Yeah. to be fair yeah yeah it's just the way that i see it like it's two sides of the same coin i'm but it's just i'm obviously of the mindset that i that i i want the the cinemas to succeed because to me the best experience of watching a film is in the cinema and exactly I don't go for, like, I don't believe that cinema is a social thing. I think cinemas are best enjoyed on your own, but that's just my own personal opinion because I mainly don't like other people. So, <laughs> <laughs> the um, but as technology gets better and better, and mm. home entertainment systems get better and better, is where the cinemas have to really change the game to stay ahead of the curve because the bigger home entertainment systems get the more obsolete it makes the cinema look. But then you've still got things like um, the IMAX theatres where, you know, the, the seats move and you get, like, the scents and the whole... That's just a gimmick, though, isn't it? That, that's... that's but it's the same as when... It, can you well, get that gimmick at home? Well, a similar thing happened when 3D first came in, and that's that's... That's available in homes now, so I can only see it as a matter of yeah. time before it's somehow made uh, available at home. It's gimmicks aren't are never the future; then they're, they're never the solution. They're a bandaid over a shotgun wound. You know, the only thing that guarantees success and guarantees money is a good product, well made, which is what I've all, yeah. what I've always said. But then, how do you know whether a gimmick is an actual gimmick or you know one of these like innovations if you don't just try it out first? You know, it, trial it's trial and error. Yeah, mm. it, it is trial and error, but there's also a. Sometimes you just know. Just put on it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, sometimes you just, you just look at a thing and it's like, this isn't going to last. Especially with 3D, because we've essentially been trying oh, 3D films for the past 100 years. So, and it, it doesn't improve immersion, it just gives you a headache. Yeah. It's not accessible to anyone. <laughs> 
It's like we keep trying, and it's just like, yeah, this just. This and this, this is one of the things that annoys me about filmmakers like James Cameron, who just focuses on technology and special effects, which don't make a film good. A good, mm-hmm. a, a good story and characters make a film good, not the effects. Like, oh. I mean, how many big films like your your superhero films? Let's say. Endgame and Infinity War, for, for instance. True, mm. it's a good film, but it, it's not considered amongst the pantheon of cinema classics, is it? No, it was just too... Oh, it was too much. <laughs> too big, too flashy, and just... Like, the only thing about Infinity Wars that, like... Is it even Infinity Wars? I'm not even sure whether it is Infinity Wars. Let me think. Or was it Endgame? Which one is it where Peter Parker is basically like, I don't feel so well, Mr. Stark. That's, he, Inf- in, that's Infinity they, War. Like, I don't even know whether it's Endgame or Infinity War because like they all just blur into one. Like, I have that issue already. But like, this is Marvel. You're supposed to be able to be like, oh, yeah, actually, I remember this is from that film. And it's just like, no, the I'm... only thing that I remember about the film is just Peter just vanishing and uh, just being like uh, that kid deserved better I was heartbroken the, the, the mom, the moment she re- um, um, can look good in the mom you remember characters and story moments more mm. I think because there's that like emotional response yeah and 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 you can't get an emotional response from a computer program, oh. which I wish um, someone I mean, told George it... Lucas in around nineteen ninety eight. But you know, I mean, the way that I feel for for BBA, I love BBA so much. <laughs> yeah, but he was practical. He was practical. He was a puppet. He wasn't a special effect. He was actually there. Ah, oh, right, that's what you mean. Okay, because I was just like, well, technically, like, bb it's a computer, and I really like bb 8 uh, But, yeah, for, for special effects, I think it is... I think that's why Jurassic Park works so well. Even now, when we rewatch like, Jurassic Park, it's still a classic, is because of the animatronics that we used. Yeah. Because it's physically there. It's practical, just... practical effects that are actually there yeah. will always look more lifelike because they are lifelike they're there like um if you like, that like in the the star wars prequels there wasn't a single clone trooper that was real they were all cgi yeah which just you can kind of tell because they how they all look the same they all look like they're made in the computer program especially when one of them's got their helmet off because it just looks like a floating head on top of a <laughs> computer generated image which is essentially what it is so. <laughs> yeah yeah like um like i said earlier i've um i've been re-watching glee and um there's one episode in i don't even remember because it's just like it's a marathon now but um yeah there's there's one ed- um episode where in the the audience they actually use like mannequins and dummies uh-huh. and i kind of paused it on i, I just I needed to get a glass of water or something, and I just I paused it. I was like, "That head does not look." Oh, that isn't real. That isn't real. They actually used dummies, but I think 
if I hadn't paused it at that awkward moment, I wouldn't have realised. And then somebody on Twitter was just like, oh, hey, I'm, I've, I've been watching this episode. I was like, I'm watching that episode right now. And they noticed the dummy and it was just awkward. But while you're actually watching it, it does look real. But then when you look closer, it's just like, oh, wait, no, that that's not an actual person. It's a dummy instead of it's CGI. When it's CGI, um, there's that. Is it the Uncanny Valley where you just um, know it's not real? Closer you can get to simulating real faces, the less real it looks. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I think we're gonna have to gonna have to bring us around to a conclusion because otherwise this is just gonna be two hours of people randomly rambling about different places. Which (laughs) they're all they're all great conversation topics, but I I feel like they could all make a podcast in their own right. And we're (laughs) just about to cross the two hour mark, and I think people will still be starting to lose patience for right about now. (laughs) So I'm going to bring us. Screeching towards a halt and a conclusion here by uh, plugging my website where you'll be able to find this episode and all of my reviews at majorfilmreviews.com. You can find me on Twitter at Nathan Ken Major. And you, do you want to plug any of your stuff, Angel? I don't currently have anything to plug other than just, yeah, enjoy K dramas. Netflix <laughs> has a nice selection. I highly recommend Itaewon Class. And if you've got um, a Vicky subscription, then if not, get one. Um, it's V-I-K-I and watch Goblin, The Great and Lonely King. Uh, that's got um, Gong Yu in it, who was in Train to Busan. And oh, really? He plays, yeah, yeah. He, he plays um, kind of like a, a demigod. And I don't want to give too much away, but it's such a beautiful story. And the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. And I just love the actors. Everything about it is absolutely brilliant. So if you can, you know, get a Vicky subscription, go watch that. And I'll remind all the listeners that all of the films that we've talked about are available through usual streaming devices or available on DVD and Blu-ray from your preferred um, retail outlet of choice. Um, A recommendation from me seen as Angel made one. I recommend Hamilton on Disney Plus, of course. Um also recommend Frozen 2 if you haven't seen that one and you're a fan of the first one. And of course I recommend Parasite and Mother, both of which are available to stream and to buy on Blu-ray and DVD. Thank you for listening to this uh rather confusing in the end podcast where we ended up talking about many different <laughs> topics. Um we we dallied with all sorts of different kind of fancies and talked about all kinds of different historical points i hope it all interested you and we'll be back to ramble again next month (laughs) i imagine so uh thanks for joining me once again angel thank you for having me and uh, i'll talk to you again next month bye bye